First Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been there for quite some time together, and we continue to kind of unpack First Peter um, in this series called Sojourners. We've been thinking about First Peter for a while now because we've been looking at what it looks like to live as a sojourner, as a sojourner or a resident alien, someone who's got a green card, so we don't belong to this world, but we belong to the world that is to come. And so we've been looking at what it looks like, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 14, when he speaks of those of us who are Christians, he says, for here we have no lasting city, but the si- we seek the city that is to come. So we're not looking to have a comfortable life in this world, but we're waiting for the world that is to come. We're not trying to model our lives after the patterns and priorities of the culture of this country, but the culture of our true country that is on the horizon one day that will break through. And so we've been looking at 1 Peter to take a look at that. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these nine verses in 1 Peter 1 that have to do with what holiness is and what a holy life looks like. And so far, what we've said is this, is that holiness, while it is not less than living inside of the God-ordained boundaries that God, ex- that God creates, that it is more than that. It's not just abiding by a list of rules. Holiness isn't just keeping the rules really good or really well. That would be the proper English way of saying that. Right? It's not just keeping the rules really well. Neither is holiness just being a good person. It's not just having cultivating certain qualities or characteristics of of virtuous qualities in our lives. So it's not just keeping the rules and it's not just being a good person because holiness is not a lease contract with God, we've said, where we say, God, I'm going to give you these areas, give you access to these areas where it's comfortable and convenient and beneficial for me, but I'm going to keep these other areas to myself. I'm going to lease you space, but I'm going to retain ownership. Rather, what holiness is, is when we come before God and we say, God, I am all in and I'm all yours. Here's all of me. You own me twice over. You created me and you bought me. You brought me into existence and gave me life and you caused me to be born again and gave me new life. And so I'm all yours. You have access to every corner of my life. Here I am. That's what holiness is. It's not just the keeping of the rules and it's not just being a good person. It's standing before God and saying, God, use me for your priorities and purposes. I'm all yours. So we've seen that. We've also seen last week that if we're going to go all in and be all his, if we're going to bet everything on Jesus, push all our chips to the center of the table and say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm not diversifying my portfolio. I'm not going to have hope in certain things in this world and then have eternal hope in you. But everything that I'm looking for, everything that I'm longing for, everything that I'm hoping in is going to be found in your son. If I'm going to go all in, it's going to mean that there's a certain resistance in our lives where we refuse to be conformed or shaped by what we said last week were the over-desires that we once had before we were redeemed. So wanting, we said last week, wanting good things too badly can lead us to do very bad things to get them or keep them. So it might be a good desire that we have, but when you want it so desperately that you're willing to do anything to get it and anything to keep it, It's a passion of our former ignorance. It's an over-desire. And Peter says, if you're going to go all in and be all his, you got to resist being shaped by those because you're waiting for something better. You're desiring something better. We saw C.S. Lewis said last week that it's not just, we're we're so content to play in the mud because we've never seen the beach. (laughs) And we make mud pies all day long and bake those things and just keep consuming them because we've never understood what it's like to sit on the beach and build a sandcastle. There's something better coming. But not only do we live with this resistance, but also with a particular reverence, Peter says, a fear we conduct ourselves with during this time of our exile. 
So we have a resistance refusing to be shaped by our former passions of our former ignorance, but also a reverence as we live in fear before God, a holy fear because of who he is as a father who judges impartially. So this week, we come to the very end of that text in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we've kind of been unpacking together. And so we're going to read the whole text together from verse 13 down to the verse 21, and we're going to come back and see what Peter has to say to us next about what it looks like to live a holy life. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Cut last weekend at Fun Fest in downtown Royce City. We, went, we rolled into downtown Royce City with a big canopy and we set up these doors. It was like I was, I was there early in the morning and there was one older in, in gentleman who came by and he was looking at the door, scoping things out, trying to figure out what was behind them. And he asked me this question and I kind of got a little tickled when he asked me uh, because he said, what's behind those doors there? And I said, well, I, you know, we've got some projects. He said, ah, I know what it is. It's a, it's a blonde, a brunette and a redhead. And his wife was standing there next to him. She goes, maybe it's a confessional, right? And so she's, we set up these doors and we had prizes behind there with T-shirts and bracelets for people to come by and open up the door. If they could pick a key out of the bucket and open the door, they got whatever was behind the door. And so we had people come by all day trying their hand at the keys and the doors. Um, we gave away, I think, 55 T-shirts. We didn't anticipate giving away that many. But we gave away a lot of T-shirts last weekend and some bracelets. But it also allowed us to have some really good conversations with people as they kind of passed through. And one lady, as she stopped by, she kind of picked up one of the invite cards and she tried her hand at the door. Um, and then we started having a conversation. And over the course of that conversation, I asked her if she had a local church that she was connected to. And she said, yes, I, I do. I go to XYZ Church down the road. And she said, but it's so far. Sometimes I don't make it. Uh, she said, but I'm always open to trying a, a new place, particularly if it's closer to my home. Because, and as she walked off, she kind of made the statement. She said, I'm always looking for a, uh, a new place because I always just need some, a little bit of inspiration. I just need a little bit of inspiration right, from the Bible or from going to church on Sunday mornings. I need a little bit of inspiration. And see, I think there's, there's a lot of folks within our culture who have that similar perspective. Is they're, they're looking to the church or they're looking to the Bible kind of like it's chicken soup for their soul. Okay? Um, and so they just need a little bit of inspiration to kind of kick them into, into gear. But what the Bible, the consistent teaching of the Bible is not that you and I need a little bit of inspiration. But we actually, what we need is a total overhaul, a complete transformation of the, what we desire and of what we think. The Bible says you don't need a little inspiration to kind of lift you, be the wind beneath your wings, to soar up into the heavens of your best life now. That's not what the Bible is intended to do for us. 
But what the Bible says is that what you and I actually need is not a little wind beneath our wings, but we need a surgeon who can do a heart transplant. Because the Bible is not, we said, chicken soup for the soul or a Band-Aid or antibiotic for a cold. But rather what the Bible is, is truth that functions like radiation to bring about change internally that would thereby then bring about change externally. See, we don't need inspiration. What we need is transformation. The Bible is consistently hammering at that truth. And so there's some particular truths, though, that Peter addresses here toward the end of this text that we just read that are like radiation, because the Bible says what you and I have is not a cold, but it's cancer. It's a spiritual cancer. And what we need is radiation to target that cancer in a way that's going to eradicate it, help root it out, and bring about deep and lasting change from within Right? So holiness isn't trying to externally manipulate your behavior to conform to a pattern of rules, but it's about an internal change that's brought about inside as you begin to radiate your heart with the truths of Scripture. And so that's what we want to look at this morning is what is it that we've got to begin to radiate our hearts with? And the first thing that Peter tells us, he tells us several things here in the latter part of this text that we just read. The first thing that we've got to see is that if you and I have any shot of not just coming looking for a little bit of inspiration, but actually encountering and experiencing the kind of transformation the Bible says is possible, then we've got to begin to radiate our heart with what we know. In other words, you've got to take the truths that you know and begin to radiate your heart with them. In the same way that doctors, right? Melanie Provo, who um, has been a, a, a member of this church for a number of years. Many of you know that she's just gone through chemotherapy and she had some radiation and she just had surgery to remove a tumor from her liver. And she's battled cancer for the last 10 years. But when the doctors treat her, they pinpoint the areas of her life, or the, I'm sorry, the areas of her body where those, those tumors are growing with radiation in order to kill those cells so that there might be health that's produced subsequent to that. And the same is true for you and I, is we've got to begin to pinpoint those areas of our life and our heart with the radiative truth of God's word, what we know to bring about lasting change. That's what Peter tells us here. got to take the truth that you know and begin to radiate your heart with it. In verse 18, Peter says this. He says, knowing, right? We kind of pick up where we left off last week from verse 17. Because in verse 17, Peter ended by saying this. He said, you've got to conduct yourselves with fear. We said last week a reverence throughout your time of exile. Conduct yourselves with this holy reverence toward God while you're living in this country but belonging to the true country that's coming. You gotta conduct yourselves in fear, but how do you do that? Peter says, you gotta know something. You gotta radiate your heart with what you know. He says, you gotta know that you were ransomed. Knowing, he says in verse 18, that you were ransomed. Now, to be ransomed or redeemed, as maybe some of your translations word it that way, means that God has done something to rescue you. He's done something to rescue you, He's purchased you from captivity, He has paid the price of your freedom. In other words, we were bound in sin. We were bound to uh, slaves to a cruel taskmaster. And what God has done is he's leveraged the price. He's paid the price necessary to release us from that slavery and that bondage and captivity. And when Peter says that we were ransomed, he's using a passive verb. That means this, is that you didn't do anything to ransom yourself, right? 
God has done everything necessary to ransom you, to rescue you. So God didn't come to you when you were in slavery and say, hey, here's a job. And whenever you've worked long enough and you've paid off your debt, then you'll be set free and released. He didn't come in and say, here's the Ten Commandments. And if you get really good at keeping those commandments, then I will see you as worthy of being rescued. And then I will redeem you or ransom you or pay the price necessary to set you free. Rather, what God does, before we ever show any worthiness of being rescued, he comes and rescues and redeems and pays the price and he ransoms us. We didn't work off our debt, but God paid it in full. In full. Peter says, you've got to understand that you were ransomed. Because understanding that you were ransomed begins to create this reverence and a holy fear for God. But notice what he says. He says, not only were you ransomed, but you've got to know that you were ransomed. And that word knowing is an active verb. And it's, a, it's, 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 it's communicating kind of a present tense idea. In other words, it's something you've got to do over and over. You've got to come back to this over and over and over and over again. Right During Martin Luther's ministry, whenever people showed up sometimes, because Luther would show up every weekend and he'd open the Bible and he would preach the gospel to them. <laughs> and somebody came to Luther one time after the service and said, why is it that you preach the gospel to us every weekend? Every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we show up and you just talk to us nothing, about nothing other than the gospel. And Luther said, well, when you get it, I'll stop talking to you about it. <laughs> right? When you've got it nailed down, that's when I'll stop talking to you about it. And Peter says the exact same thing. He says, knowing over and over and over and over and over again, you gotta take this truth, the fact that God has rescued you and ransomed you and redeemed you, and you gotta radiate your heart with it. You gotta radiate your heart with it. Something that you and I have, God does the ransoming, you and I do the knowing. He is rescued. We radiate our hearts with the fact that we have been. Now, how do you know? Here's a question, right? How do you know if you're approaching holiness this way? How do you know? Because if you don't, if you just if you forget the fact that you've been ransomed or you never really understood it to begin with, and you thought that maybe somehow you climbed the stairs up to God rather than seeing that God came down the stairs to you, then you begin to approach holiness backwards and thinking that somehow all the good things that I do will pile up and amass for myself some merit in God's eyes. And so you begin to approach holiness backwards. How do you know if you're approaching it backwards? Here's, let me give you an indication, a marker, a dashboard light that should go off for you to know whether or not either you've never really understood the fact that you've been ransomed and you thought that maybe Christianity and holiness was about keeping the rules really well and becoming somebody who could outwardly bend their will toward the keeping of all the commandments. Or you've forgotten the fact that you were ransomed. How do you know? Here's a marker that you can identify that with. Here's what I want to ask you to do over the course of the next couple of weeks is begin to look at what you're boasting in. You begin to look at what you're boasting in. See, those who don't know that they've been ransomed or that God has ransomed them or they've forgotten the fact that God has ransomed them, they end up boasting in right, their purity or they boast in their generosity or they boast in their sacrifice or they boast in their service and they begin to approach the Christian life as if, man, it, doesn't everybody do these things? Doesn't everybody do these things? Isn't everybody as generous as I am? Everybody should be as generous as I am. 
Isn't everybody as pure as I am? Well, everybody should be as pure as I am. Right? Doesn't everybody serve as sacrificially as I do? Everybody should serve as sacrificially as I do. See, if you're boasting in things that you do or have done, there's a good chance either that you've never understood the fact that the way that you came to faith in Jesus was not by climbing the stairs up to God, but by him coming down the stairs to you to rescue you. Right? It wasn't that you were caught in a swift moving stream and God threw you down a life raft and you climbed on board of that life raft and you paddled to the shore. Rather, what God does is he hovers over you in a helicopter and he kind of lowers himself down on the cable and he grabs your hand and he rips you out of the water and lifts you to safety. That's what he's done. You didn't do anything to climb the ladder to him. He came all the way down to you. And unless you understand that, unless that becomes clear to you and becomes this very central truth of your life, then you're always going to boast in things that you have done or are doing. You're going to boast in your purity, in your generosity, in your service, and how good you have been. But if you understand that you've been rescued and ransomed by someone else, then what it's going to create for you is not a boasting in what you've done and how good you are, but in how good he is. That's what you're going to talk about. That's what you're going to boast in. Do you know that you've been ransomed? Isaac Watts wrote an old hymn called I Boast No More. And listen to what he says. He says, no more, my God, I boast no more. Of all the duties I have done, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. No more, my God, I boast no more. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. But faith, faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. Isaac Watts said in that great hymn, he said, listen, if you understand that you've been ransomed, you're not going to boast in your merits. You're not going to boast in your obedience. You're not going to boast in your virtues. You're not going to boast in how well you keep the rules. You're not going to be unapproachable because people can't come to you because they think that you're on some other spiritual platform or plane than they are. But you're going to be absolutely approachable because you know that any progress you've made in holiness in your life is because God reached down and he lifted you up. Holiness doesn't begin with you cleaning your life up to offer it to God. Holiness begins with him rescuing you from certain destruction. You've got to radiate your heart with what you know. Knowing that you were ransomed. Second thing that Peter tells us is that you've got to radiate your heart with what you were ransomed with. What you were ransomed with. In verses 18 and 19, Peter says that Christians have been ransomed with that which is precious, he says, not perishable. Not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. For Peter, think about it this way. For Peter, the most valuable commodity in his mind that he could wrap his head around when he talked about the price that God had paid in order to rescue us from certain destruction, the most valuable temporal commodity he could think of was silver and gold. Most valuable thing that he could think of. And Peter says, listen, God did not rescue you or pay the price of your ransom with silver and gold. In essence, what he's saying is this. God didn't have a bunch of shares in Google and Apple and go out and liquidate those shares in order to have the cash reserves in order to go purchase you. God didn't go scurry up all the change in his home, right, in heaven somewhere in the mansions of glory and look underneath his mattress and pull out this wad of cash and to come and ransom us. 
God did not go and sell off oil fields in the Middle East in order to have the, the, the necessary funds in order to pay the price to rescue us. Even though God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he did not sell off a single head in order to pay the purchase price for our freedom. No, God did not liquidate cattle, but rather, rather he gave the life of a lamb. That's what Peter says. A lamb who was without blemish or spot. Now Peter's drawing on some very Old Testament imagery here. If you go back into Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the, the priests were, were, were uh, ordered or commanded by God to make a, an offering for the sins of the people. And they would come into that most holy of places that one time a year. And we're in that most holy of places behind that veil where the Ark of the Covenant sat and upon it was the mercy seat in Leviticus chapter 16. And they would take two goats and they would, they would, they would one would be the scapegoat that they would send off into the wilderness. And the other would be the one that they would offer up as a sin offering for the people. And they would, he would slit the throat, drain the blood into a basin, and he would go in to the Holy of Holies that one time a year with that blood. And he would take it and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. Upon the mercy seat to make a sin offering to atone for the sins of the people. And in so doing, would turn aside God's wrath and God's anger from his people as it fell upon a substitute, one who stood in the place of the people, this lamb. And what Peter says is all that Old Testament imagery and ritual is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That he is the lamb that is spotless and without blemish. He is the lamb whose blood was shed in order to turn aside God's anger against sin. He is the lamb who was slain in order to make atonement for the sins of many. That one would die in the place of many. That there would be a substitute that was sufficient to stand in our place. And Peter says, you have to understand that you were ransomed. And you have to understand the price that it cost. Because it did not come at the price of the cattle on a thousand hills. But it came at the price of a sinless, perfect, spotless lamb. The very Son of God himself. Thomas Cramner, a Puritan pastor, said it this way. He said, our justification comes freely by the mere mercy of God. And of so great and free mercy that whereas all the world was not able of themselves to pay any part toward their ransom. It pleased our Heavenly Father of his infinite mercy without any our reward or deserving. In other words, we didn't do anything to deserve it or to, to merit it. He said to prepare for us the most precious jewels of Christ's body and blood, whereby our ransom might be fully paid, the law fulfilled, and justice fully satisfied. In other words, God has ransomed you, and he's done it at the expense of himself. Of himself. He's given his son in my place and in your place. And Peter says you've got to radiate your heart with that price that was paid for you. You gotta come back over and over again to this precious lamb that was slain to turn aside God's anger so that you might know the heart of a father. Now, why does that make a difference in our progress in holiness? Here's why. Let me tell you. 
because you never know how to respond. You never know the degree of gratitude with which to respond until you know the extent of the price that was paid. Listen, if, somebody, if, if you went out of town, for, out of the country for a couple of weeks and you had somebody come and house sit for you, right? Feed your dog and cat. I don't know why you want to feed your cat because you should probably just let that thing go ahead and go. Um, but come, come and feed your animals and take care of your home and make sure nobody breaks in and sleep there and all that stuff. You had somebody to come care for your property while you were out of town. So let's say over the course of that time, when you show back up in town, right, there's um, the, the person who's house-sitting for you meets you at the door, and they greet you, and they, you come inside, unpack your bags, and you guys settle there and have coffee together before they head to their house. And they tell you that while you were gone, you received a package in the mail that required payment, and they went ahead and made payment for you as a gift, and there's nothing you can do to repay them. How would you respond? You wouldn't know how to respond until you knew the size of the payment that they had made for you, would you? Because if they said to you, well, listen, you got, you, there was a letter that came in the mail and you needed to make postage on it, and so I paid the 52 cents and postage is taken care of. Listen, you don't owe me a thing. Oh, well, thank you very much, right? You might tell them thank you. But if they said, hey, listen, you, you, your, your water bill came in, and I went ahead and just as a gift to you, went ahead and decided to pay your water bill this month, 150 bucks. So I went ahead and made the checkout, sent cash, money order, whatever it is. Went ahead and sent that bill in for you, and it's taken care of. You can't, you, you can't return. I don't want to take anything from you. It's a gift. You might say, oh, well, th- well, well thank you. Can I, you know, I, I want to do something. Right? Can I take you to dinner? But if somebody said, hey, your mortgage came in this week, and while you were gone, I want to make sure it wasn't going to be late, so I went ahead and paid that for you. That's a gift, right? There's levels of gratitude that you would respond with. But if somebody, somebody said, listen, you received a letter from a, a, a law firm indicating that you had been sued, and the, the plaintiff had filed, and the judge had ruled in their favor, and now you owe $2.7 million. And that letter came in the mail this week. And I want you to know, I went ahead and, and took care of that for you. God gave me the resources to do so, and I took care of it for you. What would you do? Probably fall on your face at their feet in tears, weeping with deep heart filled with deep gratitude saying, I can never repay you. I can never repay you, but I will forever be grateful and my life is yours. You see, when you understand the extent of the payment There was one who was perfect and spotless and blameless, whose blood was shed so that yours would not have to be, who was separated from God as he hung on the cross and said, Father, Father, where are you? And descended into hell, into the place of the dead, and was separated from his daddy that he had known from all of eternity past in order that you and I might be received into the family. See, when you understand the extent of the payment, only then do you know the degree of gratitude with which you should respond. So Peter says you've got to radiate your heart with the fact, with what you know, and what you know is what you were ransomed with. The precious blood of Christ. Not only do you have to ransom your heart or radiate your heart with what you are ransomed with, but also with what you are ransomed from. With what you are ransomed from. Look at what Peter says in verse 18. He says, Peter says that Christians have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. 
Now, let's be clear. I don't think Peter's talking here about um, the, the feudal ways of religious ritual inherited through, the, you know, through Judaism that came down. Um, and he's not talking about necessarily that legalistic, law-laden version of Judaism that existed in Jesus' day. Peter's not writing to a primarily Jewish audience here. He's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. And what that means is this. If you want to translate that into modern-day terms, it means that he's not primarily writing to traditional religious people. He's writing primarily to people who are not church people. They weren't church people before they came to faith in Jesus. That God rescued them and ransomed them with the precious blood of Christ out of a background that didn't involve traditional Judaism and the sacrifices and the offerings. So Peter is talking more, less about that law-laden traditional religion and he's talking more about the dysfunction of pagan homes. And he says that what Jesus has done, what God has done is he's rescued you from the feudal ways of your forefathers. From those ways that were inherited from a household in which perhaps God's name was not known or spoken except in very profane and flippant ways. And Peter says the blood of Jesus brought you freedom from that way of life. From that way of life. And what does this mean for you and I? It means this, at least. It means that you and I should never belittle the blood of Jesus by saying, I can't be free from how life has always been. I can never change, or they can never change. We need to stop being victims of the patterns and priorities of life that were set for us by those who came before us at both a cultural level and a personal level. Because there are feudal ways inherited, ways of life inherited from our forefathers that are at a cultural level that permeate the nation that we live in. And there are feudal ways inherited from our forefathers uh, that permeate our lives now that came from our families of origin and our upbringing, what we saw in our homes at both a cultural level and a personal level. We need to stop saying these are my cultural blinders and I'll never be able to escape them. So at a cultural level, let's consider a couple of things. We need to reject the rampant consumerism and individualism that permeates much of church life in our day and time to where we evaluate a church on the basis of what it can do for me. What goods and services do they have to offer to me? If they don't have appropriate goods and services, then I'll go to the one that's down the street because they do have appropriate goods and services. I've said over and over again from this platform that what we need is a generation of Christians who don't say, I'm going to hop churches until I find the appropriate goods and services. But what we need is a generation of Christians who are going to stay and help build ministry and engage people. See, there is a permeation of, our, of the church with these values and priorities of our culture of consumerism and individualism that we need to understand that we've been released from, freed from. In addition, we have to understand and reject the fact um, that the, the American dream is kind of the pattern and priority for our life. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper uh, writes about a, 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 an older couple, probably middle age, um, you know, in their 40s, 50s, maybe, maybe late 50s, who retire early. They'd worked hard all their lives, and they retire early. And in their early retirement, they have the, the resources to go purchase a home on the coast. And so they purchase this home on the coast and they move into the home. And they spend their days walking up and down the beach and enjoying time with listening to the waves lap up against the sea because they had worked all their lives for this dream retirement one day. This place that they're going to have all to themselves, this seclusion that they will have. So they labor and labor and labor and labor and labor. 
and then they spend their days walking the beach collecting seashells. Seashells. And they bring them home and they put them in buckets and they got buckets and buckets and buckets of seashells. And he makes the statement in that book as he tells that story. He said, I wonder what it will be like one day to stand before God and say, God, here's all my seashells. Here's all my seashells, the big ones and the small ones. You see, the blood of Christ has redeemed us from that futile way of life. Of going, if I could just work really hard for 20 years and then retire and then disappear into the background somewhere where no one will bother me again and I can just collect seashells. The blood of Christ has redeemed us and rescued us from the American dream. It's a futile way inherited from our forefathers. Because when you get on that treadmill, it's a never-ending treadmill. And you'll be chasing that all of your life. You'll be chasing it in order to get it, and you'll be chasing it in order to keep it once you have it. Man, I want, I, my desire is that we would be a church, that Redeemer would be a church that are filled with people who when they stand before God, they're not going to have a collection of seashells to show for their life's work. But rather, there would be souls standing to their left and to their right because of their labors. in this life, which is like a vapor. And they would spend it up on the purposes of God's kingdom. So we need to recognize that God has rescued, ransomed us from cultural patterns and priorities that shape our lives, but also from personal ones. Also from personal ones. Now that's going to get really close to home for some of you in here this morning. Because some of you have come from families. Now, every, every family is dysfunctional, right? <laughs> Every single one. But then there are some that are more highly dysfunctional than others, and some of you may come from some of those. Where your only thoughts of your childhood were abandonment, and your only thoughts of your childhood were frustration, and your only thoughts of your childhood were neglect, and your only thoughts of your childhood were abuse, and your only thoughts of your childhood were absentee mothers and fathers because they were trying to get to a life of collecting seashells. And listen, there are personal patterns and priorities that come out of your family of origin that have shaped the way that you think that some of you think you will never be free from. You think, well, of course, I'm, I'm, maybe some of you who are single, you're terrified to get married because you know, think that your marriage is going to end in divorce because that's kind of what you came from. And you saw how hurtful it was and harmful and destructive it was in your family of origin. We need to stop saying this is the way things are always going to be for me because this is how my parents were. Or this is how my upbringing was. Or this is the traumatic experience that happened to me in my past. And I will never be free from that. Some of us need to stop saying and believing. Believing that we'll never be free from our endless quest for acceptance and approval because we never received that from authority figures in our life as we were aging and growing up. And so we turn everywhere into everything to find someone who would accept us and someone who would approve of us. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna justify ourselves by working really hard 
and giving ourselves over to a very futile way of life. See, some of us think because of the abuse and the neglect and the shame that we felt from our childhood and that we will never be free of that. Listen, when you think that way, in the same way that some of you think you can never be free of the American dream, when you think that way, you're belittling the blood of Jesus who spilled his blood to rescue you from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You don't have to live that way any longer. You can be free. You can be free. Derek Webb several years ago on an album that he released entitled a song called Lover. And on that song, he says this. He says, because I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. So you bring all your history. I'll bring the bread and wine. Oh, and we'll have us a party where all the drinks are on me. And as surely as the rising sun, you shall be set free. He says, listen, you bring all of your history. I'll bring my body and my blood, the bread and wine. I'll bring everything to the table necessary for this party. All you're bringing is your baggage. All you're bringing is your history. All you're bringing are your failures. All you're bringing are your disappointments. All you're bringing is the shame that you feel over the abuse and neglect that you experienced in your history. These traumatic experiences that have shaped how you live. That's all you're bringing to the table. And Jesus says, I'll bring the bread and wine. And we're going to have a party where I provide everything that you need. And as surely as the sun will rise on the horizon tomorrow, you will be set free. You don't have to live in those ways of life any longer. You've got to radiate your heart with what you were ransomed from. With what you know, with what you were ransomed with, with what you were ransomed for, or from, and finally with what you were ransomed for. If you look toward the end of the text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 20, 20 and 21, Peter says this. He says that our freedom from these things, they depend just as much on, not on, on Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he lives, and as they do on his substitution and the fact that he died. Listen to what he says in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Peter 1 when he writes these words. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. He says, You were ransomed so that your faith and your hope would be in God, so that you would trust Jesus and you would treasure Jesus above all things. That you would trust him and not yourself. That you would trust him and not anyone else. You would trust him and not anything else. That your faith would be in him and him alone. But also that he would be your treasure. He would be your hope. Listen, if I told you that, that there is a treasure that is headed your way, there's a treasure that's now on the other side of the ocean and that is a part of your inheritance, it's a part of a long-lost relative that's going to be boxed up and shipped to you. It's coming to you. It's going to arrive on your doorstep. You didn't do anything to earn it, anything to merit it, anything to, 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 to deserve it or be a reward for you, but it's coming because of who you belong to because of your family lineage. It's a great treasure, the kind of treasure that would change everything about your life and your lifestyle. What would you do? You would wait for it with anxious anticipation, wouldn't you? 
You would wake up every morning looking out the window saying, where's the crate? Is it out there this morning? No, it's not out there this morning. All right, another day, another day, living as you wait for what's coming in the future. Right? Next morning you would wake up, you'd look out the window. Is it there? Is it there? You would live in anxious anticipation, expectancy, waiting for it to come because that treasure would shape everything about how you conducted yourself on a daily basis. And it would change your life and your lifestyle forever. So you would wait. You would hope in it. And that would bring you great joy as you waited for it, right? C.S. Lewis talks about how joy really is just that sense of longing that we have. That expectancy that comes, knowing that something's coming, something's coming. Right? The joy that you have on Christmas morning as a kid when you woke up, you knew something was coming right? under the tree. That joy that you had as a kid when you woke up on your birthday and you knew presents were coming. Right? That joy that you experienced whenever you prepared for marriage and you began to prepare to walk down the aisle, something's coming. There's a joy and a longing that, 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 that they're the simultaneous with each other. And Peter says you were ransomed so that he would be your treasure and that all your happiness would come from him. So you don't have to look to other things or other people for happiness any longer. You're free from that. Because he has come and is coming. That might be him right there. (laughs) I think it's just birds, though. See, if we're going to be serious about holiness, if we're going to take it seriously, we've got to begin to take these truths of God's word and radiate our hearts with them. These things that we know, we know what we were ransomed with. We know what we were ransomed from. We know what we were ransomed for. And we got to turn those truths toward our heart and radiate the cancerous tumors that are growing within to kill sin. And when you do, a life of holiness emerges. Not one that just bends externally to keep the rules and not one that just lives as a good, kind person, but one that says, God, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. You've got access to every part of me because you own me twice over. That's the kind of holiness the Bible speaks of. That's the kind of holiness Peter calls us to. And that's the kind of holiness I want to pray for us this morning that we would pursue. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and goodness. We thank you that indeed you have paid it all And all to you we owe. That though sin had left a crimson stain, that you cleansed us and washed us. Not on account of anything that we have done, but out of your great love that you sent your son in our place. God, would you help us to take those truths, turn them upon our hearts and radiate. Radiate. So that there might be an internal change that takes place and not just an external conformity so that Redeemer Church would be marked by people who are approachable and holy at the same time. Not a people who are very, very holy, but incredibly unapproachable. But a people who are incredibly set apart for you and your purposes, but at the same time, welcoming and receiving of all who would come. And God, we confess that we cannot do that without your assistance, without your grace. So would you give it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.